Hey, welcome to the Health Coaches Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's episode, a question. Would you like to become a wicked effective health coach to help people change their behaviors, change their habits, change their health destinies, and to be able to do it through a reliable process, one that works every time? If so, I'd invite you to check out the WellStart Health Coach Training Academy. And you can find it at wellstartcoach.com. And you can check and see when we're running our next training course. All right, let's get to today's topic. Hey, Howard Jacobson here, one of your co hosts of the Health Coaches Podcast. Today, I'm sharing a conversation I had with Dr. Glenn Livingston of Never Binge Again. We recorded it for his podcast, and it was so damn useful that I decided to share it with you as well. And the question is, what do we do about our feelings when we don't need to deal with our feelings? In other words, it's possible to change our health behaviors simply by applying rules, structures, by becoming the dominant alpha entity in our own brains. And whenever negative feelings come up, whenever feelings of shame or inadequacy or sorrow arise, we can simply let them be and not have them be related to our behavior. They don't have to determine what we do. But and here's a big but when we learn these other strategies to not act on our feelings, to have some agencies to be able to pause, then for the first time for many of us, we are face to face with those feelings and we have an opportunity to do something about them, to resolve them, to live in a more psychologically satisfying state of being. So this conversation is all about dealings with feelings. Enjoy. Hey, it's the very good Dr. Glenn Livingston with Never Binge Again, and I'm here with Howard Jacobson of Sick to Fit and Plant Yourself. Howie and I decided today that we were going to talk a little bit more about emotion leading, right, Howie? Let's do it. I spend a lot of time emphasizing to people that you don't have to deal with your emotions in order to eat well. That doesn't mean your emotions aren't there or that they're not something to deal with, but you can eat well even if you feel horrible. You could eat well even if you hate yourself due to past traumas. You can eat well even if you're horrifically anxious, awfully depressed, incredibly rageful and angry, or manic and unstable. You can still eat well. I think you should deal with all those other things. I'm a strong believer in therapy. I'm a strong believer in self-improvement. But you don't have to fix those things in order to make a rule and follow it, contrary to what people will tell you in the culture. As a matter of fact, lately I've been explaining to people that by the principles of operant conditioning, if you have those feelings and then you eat badly, you're actually reinforcing those feelings. If you take a baboon, for example, and you monitor their blood pressure, and whenever their blood pressure goes above a certain level, you give them a food reward like sugar water or forget what baboons like, they're going to train themselves to have consistently higher blood pressure. That's the principle of operant conditioning. And it works across a variety of situations and animals and, and humans. Meaning that if I start to associate feeling depressed with eating ice cream, then my body is going to want more and more opportunities to be depressed so I can have the ice cream. Yep. You're teaching your pig how to make you feel in order to get slop. 
that's a piercing insight for a lot of people because when you remove the slop no matter what, you know, using the never binge again techniques, then all of a sudden they realize maybe they weren't as depressed as they thought they were. Maybe some part of the depression was just to create the opportunity to have the ice cream. So I talk to people a lot about that, and that's where I focus. And I think of the emotion, quote-unquote, emotional difficulty like a fire, and I tell them that a roaring fire in a well-contained fireplace is an asset, not a liability. It becomes the center of hearth and home where people gather around and tell stories, and they laugh, and they cry, and they hug, and they kiss, and they make memories. And it's the fireplace that protects you from even one ash getting out and burning down the house. And whether the fire is a roaring fire or the smallest of remaining embers, one ash could get out and burn down the house. So what you want to do is have a rock-solid fireplace so that the fire can burn as it wants to. But inevitably, you work the Never Binge Again system and you manage to stop overeating. And so, okay, problem solved. But then there's still the fire. And some people say, this fire is still too uncomfortable. What can I do with it? And so I thought we would have a discussion about, well, what do you do with all those feelings now that you're not overeating? Make sense, Howie? Yeah. I have some initial thoughts to throw out there. Okay. Which is what you're saying in Never Binge Again is that you don't have to deal with your emotions in order to deal with your eating. Right. And that's a great relief for people. Because now there's something they can do right away. As we know, the food we're eating has a huge impact on our health, our energy, our mood, our ability to handle other things. So just handling this one thing, you're saying, actually, it's kind of low-hanging fruit compared to years or decades of psychotherapy. Yeah. Once you've done that, then you can and maybe would benefit from going into all the other stuff. And I see it that way with a twist, which is, for me, in our culture, what really bothers people is being overweight. Like, that's the thing that brings people into programs, much more so than I want to feel better or I want to be healthier, right? It's the weight. What we're saying here is you can handle the eating in order to then have the space to deal with the emotions. That it's really hard to do psychotherapy if you are constantly shooting up with food. If you're not sober, you can't do psychotherapy, right? I mean, it's a very difficult thing because you're not there. It's the addiction or the craving or the altered state that is present for the therapy and not the underlying person. So what I have discovered is applying the principles of Never Binge Again and getting my eating under control has opened up these yawning chasms in my psyche where all of a sudden I'm aware of being sad, miserable, angry, depressed, frustrated, ashamed, guilty. And they were there all along but I didn't have access to them, so I really couldn't deal with them. So that's what I see the difference is, is that we do never binge again because getting control of my eating is a small prize that I need to win in order to play the big game. It's like level one of the video game that I have to master before I get to level two, which is dealing with my own stuff. We see that exactly the same, and I would add another twist to it if it's okay. Mm -hmm. Twist away. 
I don't mean to be insensitive. And someone's going to put a comment on here that says, well, thanks, Dr. Sensitivity. I can't believe you're actually a psychologist and you've had all these years of therapy. But I have had all these years of therapy myself, and I've spent tens of thousands of hours talking to clients. And the first question I would ask about, like, what should I do with my feelings is, why do you have to do anything? What is it about the feeling that's so intolerable that you have to, quote, unquote, do something about it? Like the best thing to do with a feeling is to have a feeling. Now, people don't like to feel depressed. They don't like to feel anxious. They don't like to feel angry. But if you want to know what's causing those feelings, and let's go beyond the idea that it's reinforced by the food. Let's talk about underlying traumas and not necessarily even from your history, but something in your contemporary life. Well, okay, so then the first thing you need to do is to sit with that feeling to get the flavor of it. What's the thought content that's associated with that? So if you're depressed, are you saying, I hate my life, nothing is worthwhile, I wish XYZ was different, but I don't think XYZ can be different because of ABC. What's the content of that? Are there images associated with that? Are there people associated with that? And you need to get a sense of what that is. Like you don't even have a sense of what the solution to the problem might be until you really know what the problem is. And in order to do that, you have to sit with it. So the question, why do I have to do anything about it, is really the first question that you want to ask yourself so you can sit with that. But once you know what it's coming from, you can start to ask yourself, what would a reasonable person do here? If I don't like X, Y, and Z about my life, like I don't like where I'm living, it's too cold, I need to get my husband to listen to me more, you know, what would a reasonable person do about that? Could you study communication? Could you talk your husband into therapy? Could you go to therapy yourself to strategize how you might talk to your husband? Like once you know what the feeling is, you can start to think about what might be done about it. And you can also dispute your pig's perception of those feelings. Because in the case of depression, the pig will be typically framing things in terms of impossible problems. It will try to convince you that this problem is totally impossible to solve. And then you can start to challenge those very specific elements of it. So it all starts with getting rid of the pig slop so you can have the feelings and then sitting with the feelings and articulating them so you can look at a little more logically and thoroughly, like if you're going to do something about it, what are the false thoughts that are maintaining depression and what could you actually do? And then it can be useful to think about memories and where does this come from and when did I feel like that before and how did I get out of that and do I know anybody else who's gotten out of that and to go through all that. But ultimately it starts with, well, why do I have to do anything about it? What do you think? Hmm. I used to really like CBT, the cognitive approach of, of examining it. And I've moved much more towards, I guess it's called like more of a third wave CBT around acceptance. So exactly what you're saying, like if you're feeling about the feeling is I have to get rid of it or I have to deal with it or I have to do something about it or I have to solve it, then you're not actually dealing with the feeling anymore. You're dealing with the response to the feeling. Yeah. So whatever you're doing to that is already a level away from the root issue. You just have to have the feeling. And in the work I do with people, especially around never binge again type situations, I was talking to someone the other day. Her compulsion is this candy bar at the checkout counter. And as we were just talking about it on the call, she was immediately going into the physiology that she would have at the checkout counter. I asked, what are you experiencing? 
right now. And she talked about this feeling, this sensation in her belly, like a tightness, a longing, like tentacles reaching out for it. Her assumption was that this physical sensation was so unbearable that she had no choice but to reach for the chocolate. And since it arose in a situation where there wasn't chocolate at hand, and I was able to create some space for her and guide her through it, within about 30 seconds, she had come to the realization that that sensation, when she just let it be and stayed with it and kind of breathed and was present, wasn't that bad. At that point, like coming up with commitments and plans to deal with it is great. But for a lot of people, the only thing that they need is, I think of it as like looking under the bed at the monster that you've been terrified of your yeah. entire life. Yeah. Like, oh, this sensation in my body that I thought was going to kill me didn't. And now all of a sudden, everything else is different. Now they can look that craving in the eye and say, oh, I know what's coming. Not my favorite, but... I can handle it. I'm bigger than it. It's not really the feeling that's a problem. It's the fear of the feeling that's a problem. Yeah. And everything we do to not feel the feeling, to avoid feeling the feeling, and to escape from it once it starts to rear its head. That, like That's what I see as the behavioral and personality adaptations that we take on to avoid it then start to define us. Then we feel like we are the adaptations as opposed to we are the person with the awareness of the feeling and the adaptations and everything else that's going on. Could you say that again in a slightly different way? That sounds profound, yeah. but I'm not quite wrapping my head around it. Yeah. Should I inhale helium? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> I can't remember who came up with this metaphor, but imagine you, you like cut yourself, you get an abrasion. And you're in an area where you keep bumping into people. And every time someone bumps you or something bumps you, it really, really hurts. So you're going to start holding yourself differently. You're going to start covering it up. You're going to avoid other people. You're going to wince when they come close. You're going to spin around in circles so that people don't touch that part of you. And pretty soon, that's going to be who you are, is this dance of adaptation to avoid the pain. And it doesn't matter how bad the pain is in reality. It doesn't matter that that cut has healed 20 years ago, right? If you're not willing to take off the bandages and to poke it a little and to experience the potential of that pain, you're going to be living your life in a much greater set of pains and suffering because of everything you've done to avoid feeling that pain. Exactly. I remember when I was three years old, I had this thought that there was a wolf under my bed and I was terrified of it. And I went screaming and yelling and pounding on my father's door. And eventually he decided he had to lock me out and make me tough it out. But that was the wrong decision. But he was a kid. He didn't really know. So I was screaming and yelling and pounding at the door and throwing a temper tantrum and crying and screaming in the living room. And until eventually he came out and we went and looked under my bed and there was no wolf. And I went right to sleep. Hmm. <laughs> and there have been times in my life when I feel like I'm having that temper tantrum again, I get terrified of something. You know, like I remember when the pandemic first hit, I thought, that's it, the business is gonna tank, my life's work is not gonna really amount to anything. And I just started to go into this terror where I was like throwing that fit in my head. 
And I just had to get myself to look at the wolf under the bed, to actually face it and say, well, first of all, this is an opportunity for everyone to eat better, even though they're afraid they're going to eat worse. Secondly, it's an opportunity for me to rise to the occasion and be a better leader than I've ever been. Thirdly, it's probably not even true because people are going to need me more than they ever needed me because they're going to go into their reptilian brains. And so over the course of my lifetime, I became that adaptation at times. I would find myself throwing those fits in my head and working myself up over nothing when I just had to have the courage to take a peek under the bed. You know, sometimes as a coach, you can really give people that courage. It helped me when my dad looked under the bed with me. And I know that often I do that with my clients. And it's like half the time, what I do with my clients is nothing. I just keep them company. Sometimes it's like a very sophisticated type of adult babysitting where I'm okay with what they're scared about. I just ask them gentle questions and I keep them company. And I don't say anything brilliant. And then they saw the wolf under the bed and they're not frightened of it anymore. Yeah. To me, that's this whole idea of co-regulation, which mammals do. And it's like a crucial part of our survival bag of tricks is that we are herd animals and we rely on signals from the other members of the herd to tell us if we're safe. Right? So you think of all like the gazelles grazing and then one of them pricks up their ears. They all immediately stop grazing, prick up their ears. If one of them bolts, they all bolt. But then with like this um, group radar or sonar, they decide, oh, it was just a twig. Then they all go back to grazing. And human beings co-regulate all the time as well. We do it with any mammal, like I'm sure you and your cat co-regulate. We can be relaxed. We can be on edge. We can be sad. And so for you to be the alpha and what coaching very often is, is we are the alpha regulator. The person is in an environment, an interior environment that feels terrifying to them, and we're next to them. We're next to them under the bed, looking under the bed, Yeah. and we are giving off signals of this is safe. When I was a kid, my mother was terrified of thunderstorms, and I thought they were really cool. She used to like, come into my room and climb on the bed with me whenever there was a thunderstorm, which is why I'm so messed up now at 56 years old, but that's another story. So I think the essence of the takeaway is... What you really need to do is nothing about the feeling. What you really need to do is just tell yourself that it's okay. There's a mantra I use if I find myself getting worked up. I say, I have everything I need right now. If I have to, I'll look around. I'll see that I've got enough food. I've got shelter. I've got a warm bed to sleep in. I've got an, an annoying cat to talk to if I want to. I have enough money to pay the rent. I, I have everything I need right now. That lets me sit still with whatever feelings passing through me at that time, then I don't have to become those adaptations. I can figure out who I am and who I want to be from there. I'll tell you something that's helped me a lot. Never Binge Again is not Buddhist psychology, or like if that's not how you present it, right? It's a tactic in the moment. And doing Never Binge Again, which essentially allowed me to separate from a voice inside me than to say that that's not me. First of all, it forced me to be an observer of that voice. The mindfulness practice that I do and the meditation practice that I do where I'm simply identifying with the awareness that precedes all feelings, thoughts, emotions, and sensations. Never Binge Again has actually been good practice for that. 
in allowing me to shift perspective. Everything can be terrible. And if I can remember to identify with the awareness, the primordial awareness in which everything that's terrible is simply an observation or a sensation or a thought, then it's not even my problem. It's like awareness is looking down. Instead of being in the movie, I'm now in the theater watching the movie. It's the same movie. <laughs> the same things are at stake, but I'm in a seat eating popcorn. Yes, and you're developing your observing ego, and that gives you the perspective you need to take yourself out of the reptilian survival responses that say that things are urgent and something has to be done. Feast and famine, fight or flight. And it activates your parasympathetic nervous system and takes you in a place where your organism knows it's okay to rest and digest and figure out a longer-term strategy with this. I think that I developed Never Binge Again because I don't like to meditate. I always had a trouble sitting still and meditating. I would find peace when I went for a hike or went out in nature or did journaling for an hour, but I never could sit still and meditate. And if you think about it, when you draw a very clear line in the sand, like I will never have chocolate during the week again, it makes the monkey mind clear. So now on a Wednesday, if there's a voice in my head that says, you worked out hard enough, go ahead and have it, it's no big deal, even though it's a Wednesday, you can't wait. Now I know that's the monkey mind and I can let it go. And what people find is that this structure of mind, the never binge again structure of mind, points out the monkey mind, it gives them a way to not act on the thoughts that the monkey mind presents. And what's left when you do that is mindfulness and presence. And I think that I hacked into that by accident <laughs> because I don't like to meditate. It's a very practical way of becoming mindful and present. Yeah. And I think, you know, meditation is definitely one way to do it. But what's the formula? What's the underlying formula here. It's not sitting on your ass and focusing on a flame. It's being in a state in which there is a reduction of external stimuli so that you can engage in an introspective process with focus and intention. Yes. And what you mean by reduction of external stimuli is that we're not putting pig slop in our pie holes. Yeah. Or well, we're not putting pig slop in any of our holes, whether it's our, you know, watch, <laughs> watching, te watching television or... or it's got a very bad image, man. <laughs> <laughs> I hope nobody's hey, putting pig slop in those holes. <laughs> most... One of my favorite folk songs is called Garbage. Yeah. And it talks about, like, each verse is a different kind of garbage. And it's like, you know the garbage that we are putting into the, the landfills, the pollution that we're putting into the air. The final verse is the garbage that we're putting into our minds. There's more types of slop than come in um, yeah. Bo boxes. Yeah. Well, this is an interesting conversation. Is there anything else that you wanted to say or ask or do in this talk? I think just to remind people that feeling the feeling, whether it's a sensation or an emotion, the willingness to feel it creates energy to do things about it. So we, we're not saying stop with the emotion. It's all very circular and iterative. Like you do something with never binge again. You take an action. And then it creates the space to explore feelings, emotions, inner states. And the willingness to explore them then gives you the energy to do more actions. So it kind of feels like, you know, you can spiral virtuously 
back and forth. So it's not about should I do or should I feel. They dance together. I love it. Well, thanks, Howie. Hey, great pleasure. I hope you found that helpful. So if you'd like to become a health coach, or maybe you already are a health coach and you'd like some additional training and more skills, or perhaps you're a health professional, a doctor, nurse, dietitian, etc., who would like to be able to influence your patients more effectively, again, check it out, wellstartcoach.com. All right, have a great day.